Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome once again to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelidis. We're part of the Pantheon group of podcasts, and I have to say, I'm enjoying the weekly journey. Great fun and um, easy to put together, if I uh, if I be truthful enough. Uh, Ian Wilson was on the podcast a few, uh, maybe a month, month and a half ago, um, sharing stories about his time as an agent, uh, managing as the alarm and stuff. And he told us about um, a story about being U2's first agent, booking them their first gigs, kind of uh, eight gigs in ten days in London, I think, but it'll tell you in a minute, and um, before they even have a record contract. But we shall leave it to Mr Wilson. I didn't give up because James Todd, who was no longer really interested in seeing bands himself and his face was buried in the NME looking at, uh, at adverts for the photos, had a brother, Tim, and his brother Tim worked for Ariola Hansa Publishing. Ario Hanser eventually bought um, BMG, uh, uh, didn't they merge with BMG, I think, and ended up owning RCA. But in those days, it was Ariola. And Tim, as a publisher, um, got all the demos of all the acts in the whole of the UK and Ireland coming across his desk. And he got this one demo from this act called U2. And he came into our office and he was saying, you've got to listen to this. It's really good. So he put it on. James didn't lift his head from the enemy. But I said to Tim, I like that. That guy can play guitar. I could immediately hear that there was a guitar player on that. That was like seeing Knopfler. You could, you knew. It was like seeing Andy Summers. You knew. It wasn't punk. They were players. And also uh, the track, I remember it was a track called Boy Girl. It was off a, um, the demo was actually a 12-inch piece of vinyl called U23 which was to be released in Ireland or had just been released in Ireland. And um, the other track was called um, Out of Control. And they had a vocal harmonising, which I'd been a choir boy myself back in the day. 
And I recognized that harmony that they had as being almost like choristers. And the sort of musician in me could hear that they were really good. And I said to James, that's great. I think we should be going after this band. And he said, all right, let's put them on with Squeeze, he said, because the photos were on with Squeeze by now. But the photos had to um, record a single that weekend. So they were not going to go to Ireland where Squeeze were playing. So there was an opening on a Sunday night in Belfast. So James picked up the phone to Paul McGuinness and introduced himself and said that would they like to play on that show with Squeeze in Belfast and that someone from the office would be coming over to see them. And that someone was me. Uh, I went with Bob because Bob was the agent for Squeeze. It's the first time I've ever taken an aeroplane flight. Um, and of course, when I got to Heathrow, Bob didn't show. He was late. So I decided I'd get the plane. <laughs> so I got the plane, first time on a plane, flew to Belfast, had the experience that you can read about in almost all bands that have ever played in Belfast will tell you about staying at the Europa Hotel, which I did. Most, most bombed uh, hotel in the world, wasn't it? It was. And, uh, I stayed there. My, yeah. My first experience of the Europa was the same as everybody else's. You look out the window and you see British Army coming down with real guns, crouching, looking, you know, patrolling the patrolling the streets. Um, a bit of a, a bit of an eye opener. So uh, anyway, I, I sorry, Ian, can I? Wasn't there a rock goes to college with you too? Is it Queen Elizabeth Hall or something? In yeah, that was later. That was in the Jan oh. that was January eighty one. We still. I went to that. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, go on. I, I was there too. <laughs> We, we were probably standing next to each other, Tony. I went down to, made my way down to the university and sure enough, you two came on. And uh, there was only very few people in the hall as usual. And I watched the band. And my first impression was like, that guy playing the guitar is wearing jeans with biro all over them. I said, that's what we used to do at school when we were about 14. I thought that's really uncool. <laughs> And then I thought, that guy playing the bass has got massive, great big spectacles on and a great big mop of hair. And that's really uncool. <laughs> and uh, that drummer, I can't see him because he's behind the singer. But that singer, he's a bit awkward and he's a bit podgy, but he's really earnest. He's really into what he's doing. And there's a few people down the front that seem to be into it. And then they finish their very, very, very short set. And uh, I thought, well, I've come all the way from Ireland. Bob isn't here. Um, last time I went backstage for Linux, I got my ear chewed off. I thought, but I better go backstage and say hello. So I went backstage and um, I'm greeted by Paul McGuinness, who is so excited that I'm there at all. Um, and then I'm introduced to um, the band, except that only Bono gets a word in edgeways because only Bono could. And the overwhelming impression was of people who were so thrilled that I was there for whom it meant so much that I should have made that effort. And to be honest, this was the first time that I had a band that I could call my own. This was my band. And this was a band that really wanted me to be working for them and really felt they didn't feel privileged, but they felt grateful, if you like. And um, very, very short conversation because they had to, they were loading the gear in their van as they were speaking to me. 
and they had to drive back to Dublin because they didn't have the luxury of a hotel. And that was that. So I went back to the Europa Hotel. As I'm walking in the door of the Europa Hotel, as it seemed, Paul McGuinness is at my shoulder. I mean, boy, was that man working the room. He was all over me like a rat. So excited that I was there. So wanting me to put a tour together for him, which I did, a tour of London. He needed a record deal. And that's what he needed. He needed to come to London, needed some shows in London. Um, I had the first of what would be very, very many experiences with Paul, which I'm sure you, Tony, have experienced. A long night at the bar. In fact, so long that you don't really bother going to bed because it's time to go to the airport and go home the next day. But you are convinced that you've solved all the problems of the world and that you are bosom friends forever and nothing can ever change. And so it was that night that I left with a massive hangover, but convinced that I had my, uh, my second band, my first. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This band being the photos, but that band had been bequeathed to me by James. But this was my band. You two. You're listening to Moments That Rock. Let's get back to former agent, uh, first person to discover and promote U2, and he continues the story. Ian Wilson is his name on Moments That Rock. I got back to London and I booked them two weeks' worth of club shows with great help from a guy called Martin Horn, who just joined us from Cowbell. Um, And Martin and I together with an amazing piece of help from Bob Gold, um, gave you two two weeks worth of uh, club dates in London in less than two weeks. From the time that I saw you two, it was about mid-November, about November the 16th, I think, if if my memory is correct. And their first show was on the 1st of December. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, that's the power of a powerful agency. Because we had Ian Dury, because we had The Clash, because we had the B-52s, Talking Heads, we could pull those kinds of things out of the fire. And the first show that I booked for them, uh, Martin got me. Martin was interested in a band called Dolly Mixture, who were the little girl mod band. Uh, we were beginning to be in that era of mod bands like Secret Affair and The Chords and all those bands. So there was a kind of street scene in London for mod coming, spinning off of the jam, basically. And Dolly Mixture had got themselves a gig at, the Moonlight Club, and we put U2 on with them. Um, U2 were, of course, billed as the U2s, and I'm sure it wasn't me that did that. I'm sure it wasn't me that said that, because pretty much every promoter was billing them as U2s. And uh, I learned the following year that Paul and the band were incredibly upset about this. They were not U2s. They were U2. Very, you know, we had to get branding with U2 right very early. But... um, that uh, gig at the Moonlight Club, I remember really well because Edge turned up with a plaster cast on his hand. <laughs> and I thought, how's he going to play the guitar? You know? But I was transfixed because not only 
did he play the guitar, but he could still play the guitar with a plaster cast on uh, that would have been his um, um, his plectrum hand. So that was his right hand. Apparently, then had a, had a bit of a car accident on the drive over, and Edge had uh, injured himself. But I was just so proud of them that night, and I was just so committed that they would be my band. And the huge stroke of luck, which really kind of changed it for you two, was um, Talking Heads. Talking Heads were playing at the Electric Ballroom two nights. Um, and they originally had the Human League opening for them on that tour. The Human League had then basically dropped out and we'd replaced them with OMD. And this was really a favour that Bob Gold was able to do because Bob Gold could make a phone call to somebody who was as tough as Roger Eagle to ever get hold of, and a very, very important promoter, the man called John Curd. John right. Curd was the London street promoter. He was the guy that had done the roundhouse, and he was doing Sunday nights at the Lyceum by now. And he, he was also doing the Electric Ballroom in Camden. And Bob put the call into John. John put you 2 on that show. And that was the beginning of you 2 outside of Ireland, beginning to feel that they could point at the stars and i did actually uh, speaking directly to the singer from omd he told me the story of how um, adam and he were sitting on the stairs at the side of the stage while talking heads were sound checking and then tina weymouth came off and then started chatting that like a bass players uh, uh, union meeting and she was saying how sick she was being on the road they've been on the road for eight months and she was really fed up with it andy mccluskey and uh, and adam clayton looked at each other with their jaws open because i thought they would give them their right arms, left arms, and right and left legs to be on the road for eight months. I mean, that's all they wanted to do. That's all they could dream of doing. And to be in a position like Talking Heads were at that time was what they could dream of. But there was Tina, Tina Wayman saying, well, it's not what it's cracked up to be. Um, <laughs> I don't know how Adam would answer that question today, whether he would think uh, being the bass player in U2 and being on the road for years at a time is all it's cracked up to be. I'm not sure. That tour was the first thing I did for U2. And from my perspective, it was really exciting. From U2's perspective, it was um, knife-edge stuff because they had um, been let down by Brian Morrison, who was a publisher who um, later became well-known for finding Wham. Um, but Brian, Brian Morrison had uh, offered Paul a publishing deal, which was going to finance this trip to London and then pulled out of it. So that trip to London was financed by the band's parents. <laughs> um, and they came to London, ran up a debt and ran up a very, very little interest from the London A&R community. Um, so I had the experience of seeing how easy it had been for the photos and how almost nearly impossible it had been for U2. And one of the things that U2 did, which I don't think they will have ever done again, is they played at the Hope and Anchor um, for their third gig and um, Edge broke a string. And uh, he couldn't really play as he wanted to play and they kind of like stopped three quarters of the way through and went off. Um, and I think that's maybe why they didn't get the interest. I think the Hope and Anchor would have been the gig that there would have been the big A&R turnout to because it was a recognised gig, but it's on a Tuesday night. A&R people go out sort of Monday to Thursday. <laughs> they party Friday to Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, as you will know, it took you two going back to Ireland and uh, the island of Ireland, and it took Bill Stewart, who I believe had been in the British Army once upon a time, <laughs> who probably knew Belfast and Dublin pretty well, 
to go over and see you two perform in Ireland and persuade the people at Ireland. Primarily, I think Rob Partridge, I think, was probably the main person he had to persuade because I think Rob had the ability to persuade Blackwell that they should be signing you two. And they did. Uh, other champions, as you know full well at that time, obviously were Neil Story and Annie Rosemary. But that basically was the extent of it. It was Bill, Annie, um, Neil and Rob. Blackwell came on board later. Wonderful stuff from Mr Ian Wilson, who was U2's first agent and saw them right through to the success and everything um, in the early stages at Wasted Talent. Put them on in London for a few shows. It's very close to me. I do know, like I say, I do know the story, but I was there. It was the reason I went back to Island Records after working with Genesis and Peter Gabriel to work with that band. And I agree, all those people that he mentioned were the only people that were really into him. Apart from me, I have to say, who's at the time probably the only person in the promotion department. Um, Because the head of promotion at the time, we won't mention any names, um, couldn't really see it. But um, there is actually four separate podcasts devoted to you two on Moments of Rock. If you troll back, there's one with uh, Mr. Dave Robinson, who was uh, there in 1984 when the unforgettable fire, Red Rocks and everything exploded, and he was the managing director. Um, We have Neil Storey, who uh, Ian Wilson mentioned, who was uh, part of the press department. We have Malcolm Gary, who basically put together the TV crew that went over from Newcastle to film Red Rocks, which turned into one of the greatest rock films of all time. And we have Mark Radcliffe, who is from BBC Radio 1 in England, and I went to see them at Manchester Polytechnic, um, when they were third on the bill on the 31st of May 1981. And then four days later, of course they weren't signed, then four days later I went to see them play in a pub in Manchester to 11 people and four of those people came with me. But uh, I also have a, a special um, programme myself on the podcast which is an interview I did with Adam and the Edge uh, just before the Unforgettable Fire and there's an interview with uh, Bono and the Edge. And so go back, through uh, troll through all these wherever you listening to it and uh, if you are interested in YouTube there's plenty of information you've been listening to Moments That Rock with me Tony Michaelides we will be back next week with another one please subscribe come back for more because I'm coming back for more